Welcome to the preaching ministry of Tri-City Baptist Church in Chandler, Arizona. Our desire is that God would be magnified through the preaching of His Word, and that Christians would be challenged, strengthened, and edified in their personal walk with Christ. I invite you to take your Bibles this evening and turn with me to Ephesians chapter 6. As we continue the study of the armor of God, we've been considering the importance of being prepared for the spiritual struggle in which we are all engaged as believers, being battle-ready by wearing the whole armor. This is what we have been considering. I'd like to start our reading back just again. We've kind of jumped back into it each evening, but starting in verse 10 of Ephesians 6, so that we again get the context of what is taking place here. I think we're familiar with it. When we studied Ephesians, we came through this, but that we understand what we're dealing with here. Ephesians 6, beginning in verse 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, Take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, having done all to stand. Stand, therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and have shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one, And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. We'll stop our reading there, but then it continues on with the attitude, the attitude of prayer. And praying always with all prayer and the emphasis on that. And the importance of being ready. I want us to consider this evening the aspect of the shield of faith. Being protected by the shield of faith. It's interesting when we read verse 16, as it started by saying, above all. And the idea here is that in everything, take the shield of faith. In addition to the belt of truth, the the breastplate of righteousness, the shoes of the readiness of the gospel of peace, take the shield of faith. The idea is that, that we are prepared. One commentator put it this way, that through thick and thin... We need the shield of faith. It's it's the remembrance of the intensity of the battle in which we are engaged. You know, we're not in a game where afterwards somebody wins, somebody loses, and they, they meet and shake hands. That's not what we're talking about. And I think when we understand the, the type of battle that would be taking place, the intensity of it, that the, the military conquests of that day would be hand-to-hand combat. And as we considered last week, that these were brutal conditions. That as these armies would meet, the the battlefield would be littered with fallen soldiers, severed limbs. It would be drenched with blood. And that's why the proper footing was so important. That as that conflict would continue to have good footing in that situation, but in this kind of a context, you, you want more than, than just the breastplate of righteousness. You want another layer of protection. You don't want people beating on your, your chest. You want to try to block that. 
And so when it comes to this aspect of the the sword, the emphasis is, is really being equipped fully. That to be partially equipped in a spiritual battle is not sufficient. And part of the armor of God is, is, is putting on that shield. It won't be enough if we just are partially dressed to stand against Satan. We have to utilize the whole armor. Now, when we talk about the shield, there's, there's a couple of types that the Roman soldier would have. And as Paul would be using that to depict the situation, the, the first one is this small round shield. It would be the type of thing that would be strapped to the forearm and that, that he could use to, to block glancing blows or in that, car, that hand-to-hand combat, that it would deflect the swords or the daggers in close combat. I mean, this was an important shield, but that's not the word that Paul is using here. That's not the Greek word that's used in this text. The, the word that's being used here is for a much larger shield. It actually speaks of a shield that would have been about two and a half feet wide and about four feet tall, and it was designed to protect the entire body. Now, the average soldier in Paul's day was smaller than the average person today. In fact, I would probably be average to tall in their day. That wasn't for laughs. Um, No, really, that would be the difference. So this type of shield would really protect your whole body. For a soldier in that day, they could hide behind this. And in fact, one of the comments that would sometimes be made to their men as they would go to war was they would tell them to come back with your shield, not on your shield. Because if they were to fall in battle, the shield would be used to take them off the field. That it was a a, a full-length shield and they would lay that man on the shield and carry them off the battlefield. And so the desire was that that would not be how they come back. It It was the idea was a door shield. It was made of wood. It would be covered sometimes with metal. A more common description is one that would be covered with a cloth, a heavy cloth or, and then leather put on top of that, bound with iron, and then they would be able to drench it in water. And so when the soldiers would go forth, they could really create a wall. In fact, they could actually make it in such a way that if they went forward as a rectangle, they could put the shields over their heads and be protecting the entire group and really be this human war machine moving in the battles. And the goal was to quench the fiery darts. One of, one of the aspects, this, in fact, it's interesting because this is the only piece of armor where Paul describes what it does. That it quenches the darts, the fiery darts. It's it's able to extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one. And in ancient warfare, in that world, one of the fiercest weapons that could be used was flaming arrows. They would, they would take these cane darts and dip them in pitch and then or wrap them with cloth and soak them in pitch. And, and then the, that pitch would soften and melt and, and, and would burn as it went out. And so when it hit, it would just scatter. 
And you've got all these flaming aspects going forth. When, when I was growing up, we used to burn our garbage in the backyard. We had a trash barrel, and we were out in the country, and we burned a lot of garbage. And it was my job to burn the garbage, and I enjoyed that. And, and I, I would go out there, and I'd get a stick, and, and I found that if you took the, the bread bags, that really soft plastic, and wrap them around a stick, you could get them on fire and then hold it out, and it would drip, and it would make a neat little hissing sound with each drip. And I enjoyed that until the one day I was out, I was burning the trash, I'm wearing shorts, and one of those drips landed on my leg. And it was a tiny drip, but it was extremely painful. And I couldn't touch it with my hand. I couldn't get it off because then it's going to burn my fingers. It's already burning my leg. And, and I don't remember what I did, but I, I learned a valuable lesson. That, that dripping things on fire are very dangerous and very painful. And I had a scar to remind me of that for a long time. Well, imagine being in war and having arrows coming at you. And knowing when it hits, what's on that on fire is just going to scatter. That's what Paul is speaking of. The tip of these would be lighted, they would be flaming missiles, they'd be shot at the enemy, and on impact, that hot burning pitch would splatter and it would ignite whatever it landed on. And not only could these arrows pierce the body, they could seriously burn an enemy. They could destroy clothing, they could destroy gear. And so these leather shields would then be soaked in water and the idea would be that when they came, they would extinguish these flaming arrows. And that would prevent it from spreading. What Paul is saying is take the shield of faith that will quench these fiery arrows. And understanding this is what is taking place here. Now, when we talk about this, let's, what, is, what is faith? I mean, what's meant by that? We use that word a lot, and, and sometimes it's, well, you just got to have faith in faith. No, it's, faith has to have a right object. Now, some have taken this to refer to the faith, the body of, of Christian belief that, that must be accepted for salvation, that Jude 3 says we must earnestly contend for the faith. And, and that is the usage back in chapter 4, verse 13 when we went through and considered that, that, that there, is, there is an element of that. But, but probably, and what most commentators believe, is that this is the basic trust in God. The faith in Christ that, that, is a, that appropriates salvation. That we have put our trust in Him. My, my faith has found a resting place. I trust the ever-living one. And, and that it continues then to bring blessings and strength as we trust him for daily provision. So praying, give us this day our daily bread. You know, it's, it's believing that God exists and rewards those who diligently seek him. That's, that's what Hebrews 11 speaks of as, as faith. And, and to, to put our trust in Christ alone, then obeying the scripture as the infallible, inerrant, authoritative Word of God. It's the idea of looking for His return. It's the, the body of what we are trusting. And so it's, it's really referring to how we believe, not just what we believe. That it's that confidence that as we go into the battle, that, that we don't lose heart. It's, it's not, you know, I don't have the faith until I take it as my own. 
And there really is a personal aspect here. It, it says in, in 1 John 5, verse, verse 4, for whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that overcomes the world, our faith. So if we're going to be victorious, we have to be taking the shield of faith. You know, faith is, of course, more than mental assent. It's not just, oh yeah, I believe that. It's not just checking the mental box. That, that's, it's got to be more than that because James 2.19 says, you believe there is one God, you do well. The demons also believe and tremble. It's not just an intellectual aspect. It, now, faith has to have the right object. It, it has to have the, the proper perspective that, that it's not faith in faith, it's not faith in sincerity. Well, he was sincere. And how many times do we hear that? Well, I think if they're sincere, they'll be fine. No, it takes more than that. See, it's the faith that it enables us to, to live. It, it obeys, it endures. You know, it's the, the real faith that extinguishes the arrows of doubt. No, it, what faith does is it allows us to see sin without the mask. How are we going to be victorious? Well, we don't buy the lie of the lure of sin. Now, James 1 tells us that every, everyone is, is drawn away of their own desires and enticed. It's that lure that catches the eye. If you go fishing, you, you have a lure. You have something that, that you use to attract the, the eye of the fish, but also hides the hooks. Faith allows us to see the hooks and understand what's behind it. That we're recognizing this aspect, that, that faith sees sin for what it really is. So that's one of the reasons that when we come to the Lord's table, we're remembering that Christ died for our sins. It was my sin that put him on that cross. Well, the eyes of faith help remove the lure of sin. Because when we, when we start to question whether God is holding back or if the sin really offers something exciting and enticing, then we begin to doubt. And, and those doubts are going to be a problem. And the faith extinguishes the arrows of doubt. Because doubt brings defeat. When we start questioning, this is what we saw in, in Genesis 3. Adam and Eve begin to doubt the goodness of God. That maybe God's holding out. And now sin looks enticing. And they didn't live by faith that what God said was best and what he said was true. And so understanding, and, and this kind of gives us the, the framework for what we're speaking of when we talk about the shield of faith. What I would like us to do then is look at some specific areas and say, okay, how do I, how do I defeat the arrows of sin, those flaming arrows of the wicked one, through faith. And there are a number of areas we could look at. The flaming arrows of, of worry, of anxiety. You know, the, the, the problem is that when, we're, when we are trusting the Lord, as a Christian, there's a comfort, there's a joy, there's a, there's a happiness. When we doubt, there's an anxiety. There's a misery. There's a, there's a lack of peace. And we talked about this last week with the, the, our feet shod with the, the preparation to share the gospel of peace. But understanding that when this happens, that, that fear really dishonors God because there's an unbelief. You know, we, what do we worry about? 
Well, we worry about things we care about. We don't, we don't worry about what we don't care about. But then we're beginning to wonder, does, does God really have this under control? Does he see what's going on in my life? Does, does, is he going to give me the grace I need to handle what's coming? Will he really provide for me? And when we start to doubt, we miss God's perspective. Faith is seeing God's perspective. Let me have you turn to Matthew chapter 6. We, we've looked at this, but this is a passage that really lays this out where it's telling us don't worry about the things that are going on in life. Christ ad- addresses the issue of, of worry and anxiety in Matthew chapter 6. In these verses, it says, Therefore, I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food, the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more value, of that more value than they? Which of you by worrying can add one cubit to a stature? So why are you worrying about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow They neither toil nor spin, yet I say to you, even Solomon in all his glory is not arrayed like one of these. And and the question that's being asked here, and Jesus is asking his disciples, why do you worry about what you eat, what you drink, what you wear? That, That your life is more than these things. It's more than simply the physical. Now, for them, that, these were very serious concerns. In a day-to-day sustain, sustenance situation, it's like, will we, this is why the Lord taught them pray, give us this day our daily bread. Because they didn't have refrigerators and cupboards packed with food. They didn't have a grocery store right down the street. That, and, and if they had the money, sometimes it was difficult to get things. And so this is what's being laid out. The Lord said, why are you worrying about these things? And then look at verse 30, because he brings out what's really going on. Now, if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Do we understand that when the arrows of anxiety come, when we're attacked, that, that the issue is, am I trusting God in this? You know, when, when Satan attacks, he's causing us to doubt. And, and we see that in, in a number of ways, that, that the doubt dishonors God. It's causing us to doubt several things. And, and we could see this in Genesis 3. Doubt the word of God. Has God indeed said? And, and then when Eve responds... Satan causes her to doubt God's authority. You won't really die. That's not going to happen. God has information. He doesn't have authority. That, that was really what was being laid out there. And then doubting God's goodness. See, really, God knows in the day you eat thereof. And, and then doubting God's plan. Actually, if you would disobey God, you will be like him. And, and this is, it's those questions of doubt, doubting the goodness of God, doubting the grace of God. And, and, and so we have to extinguish these doubts with the water of the word. Now, now, we may read this and say, great, 
I just thought I struggled with being anxious, you know, and that's my disposition. And now you're telling me I'm not trusting God. It's a faith issue. Well, that's where we have hope then. Because if we just assume it's our disposition, we're not going to change. But if we understand that God will provide, then, then, we can, then we can take that shield for defense. Because we defeat it with realizing God's character. It says in Psalm 56, verse 3, whenever I am afraid, I will trust in you. Why can I do that? Because God is trustworthy. That I overcome anxiety by understanding the character of God. I overcome anxiety by the the spirit and the word. It says in 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 13, but we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, beloved of God, because God from the beginning chose you to salvation through the sanctification of the, by the Spirit and belief in the truth. You know, two of our great faith builders are the, the Spirit and the Word, the work of the Spirit and the work of the Word. That how many times, and I know in my life, when I start to have, have those anxious thoughts and getting into God's Word and the calming effect of the Word of God and recognizing the, the Spirit and the Word, that when we receive the Spirit at salvation, we, we come in faith. We, we have faith. Faith comes by hearing the Word of God. And so we defeat anxiety. We defeat worry by understanding that and then recognizing his care, that we have the right object. The object of our faith is Jesus Christ. Casting all your anxiety, your care upon him because he cares for you. That God isn't ignorant of our needs. He's not unaware of our situation and he's not indifferent to our needs. He cares. I mean, there are some people you could tell and they don't care. It says, cast your care upon him because he does care. And so we, we believe these truths, the character of God, the encouragement of the word of God, the, the indwelling of the spirit of God, and we cast our cares upon him. And in doing so, we extinguish those flaming arrows of anxiety, of worry. Now, they keep coming. The battle isn't just a one-shot but we have to keep going back into the Word. And, and so we see it in that area. Another area that could, could be an area is shame. Satan loves to bring up things from the past and, and, and cause us to question and doubt and, and, and really put us on the defensive. Now, understand there is a proper shame. When behavior dishonors God, it should cause shame. It says in 1 Corinthians fifteen thirty four, Awake to righteousness and sin not. For some have not the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. That, that we have a responsibility to be sharing the gospel. That in behavior that dishonors God, in 1 Corinthians 6, 5, it says they, they weren't willing to settle disputes among Christians properly with justice and courtesy. And they were demanding their rights. And Paul says to them, I speak to your shame. Is it so that not one of you is able to judge among the brethren? says that this is shameful behavior. If, if there's evil in, in life and, and really what the world is doing, it says in, in Ephesians 5.12, it is a shame to even speak of those things which are done 
of them in secret. You know, one of the challenges we face in our our day and age is confronting and correcting sin without improperly, inappropriately emphasizing it. Just the wickedness of our culture. It takes wisdom because these these are shameful. And then disobedience ought to bring shame. It says in 2 Thessalonians 3.14, if anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, this letter, note that person and do not have company with him that he may be ashamed. So, So there is a proper element of shame. There is a certain behavior it, it, there are, there's an improper shame. I should not be ashamed of the gospel. We saw that this morning in Romans 1.16. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Paul told Timothy, don't be ashamed of the testimony of the Lord and don't be ashamed of me as his prisoner. In 2 Timothy 1.8. We shouldn't be ashamed to live like a believer. 1 Peter 4.6 says, if anyone suffers as a Christian, don't be ashamed, but glorify God in this way. So if we're ridiculed for our Christian testimony, that's not shameful. We can glorify God in that. But we, we battle the unbelief that feeds shame. 1 Corinthians, and I, I'll just give you these references, but 1 Corinthians 6, 5, Ephesians 5, 12, 2 Thessalonians, those are the things that we, we should not be ashamed of. But Satan wants to bring things up to defeat us. He wants to bring up our past that God has pardoned. That's under the blood. And understanding that God's pardon and forgiveness, he he remembers our sin against us no more. He doesn't bring it up. And and the blessing of that, that we, we see this, so we defeat it with God's pardon. He forgives and restores. He provides a peace. In in Luke chapter 7, verses 36 and following, it's the story of the, the sinful woman who comes to wash Jesus' feet. She's an immoral woman. She's coming and washing his feet with, with her tears. She's drying his feet with her hair. And, and others around us are, are thinking, you know, if Jesus really knew what kind of person this was, he wouldn't let this happen. Well, they're shaming her. They're condemning her. And, and Jesus offers words of hope. In fact, he acknowledges that her sins were met many. He turns to the person who's invited him to his house and says, you know, you invited me in, but you didn't wash my feet but she hasn't ceased washing my feet. And and you you did not give me these things, but she has. And yes, her sins, which were many, are forgiven her. And then he turns to her, and in verse 50 of that passage says, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. That pardon brings peace. The shame is removed. You know, we, we sing pardon for sin and a peace that endures. And so Romans 10:11 says that whoever believes will not be put to shame. That if we confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus, believe in our heart that God's raised him from the dead, we will be saved. And and it speaks of that relationship that we have and then concludes for the scripture says whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. You know, shame is when when we've been forgiven We don't have to be ashamed. We can be thankful that God has forgiven us. He saved us from our sin. And recognizing we defeat the the flaming arrows of shame that Satan wants to bring up. Well, remember when? No, God remembers it against us no more.
And therefore, we can defeat those and extinguish those arrows. Another area that is often a challenge is bitterness. You know, it's hard to be wronged, to be insulted and assaulted and and endure it patiently and, and to leave the vengeance to the Lord. Now, God promises to settle accounts. And there are verses that speak to this, and we, for sake of time, won't, won't look at these, but I want, I'm trying to help us see how specific areas of temptation can be defeated with the shield of faith. You know, sometimes we don't understand God's patience. And if we're not careful, we get opened up to arrows of bitterness. Well, I think God ought to do this. Yeah, he knows what he's doing. He's not trying to figure it out. He has it figured out. And God promise, He promises that He will settle accounts. But sometimes it's hard for us to back off and let God be God. And so what do we need to do? We need to get God's perspective. You know, we, we shouldn't be surprised that there are problems in a sinful world. We, we live among fallen people and we are a fallen people. Christ Himself was accused of things that were untrue. He was accused of being a glutton, a drunk, demon-possessed, being a troublemaker, and a blasphemer. He's the Son of God. You know, when, when, when he came to his disciples and said, who, who do men say that I am? They gave the polite answers. There were a lot of other things being said. You know, when, when we're attacked, if we're not careful, it's easy to get bitter. But remember that that God has a purpose. He's working these things together for us. He can and will use bad things to accomplish a good purpose. And that purpose is that we would be like Christ. So don't be weary in doing well. Understanding the importance of this. You know, we defeat bitterness by trusting the promises of God that he will settle accounts. In Romans 12, 19, it says, Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. Put it aside, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So we can trust God that He will do what He said. That every sin has to be paid for. Either paid for at the cross or with eternal punishment. That's what we considered this morning. But God will repay. He will make things right. And He is able to work all things together for good. So we need to understand that it's important, that it's, it's not wrong to hurt. It's not enjoyable. We don't want to hurt. But it is wrong to hate. It's wrong to allow those seeds of bitterness to gain root. And the truth is they defile many. And I've seen examples of that. You know, when we hold a grudge, we're really doubting the judge that he will do what's right. When he says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. When I, when I question that, I, what I'm really saying is, I want to repay. I want to see it. And so we defeat bitterness by saying, you know what? God's in control. I can trust him. And, and leaving it with him, taking those cares to him. You know, what, what about the flaming arrows of sensuality? You know, we live in a society where the very air of our culture is filled with these arrows. I mean, we can't go anywhere without seeing horrific things. You know, you can't walk through the mall. You know, the commercials on television. 
and, and the pornography industry that is just rampant. And then, then softcore porn is viewed as, as almost common. And yet the Bible tells us in, in 1 Peter 2, 11, Dearly beloved, I beseech you, I beg you, as sojourners, strangers here, and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. It's a battle for our souls. You know, tens of thousands of people devote their energies, their lives, to wage war on the souls of people. And we have to realize that. And so a justifying faith is a lust-fighting faith. The faith that justifies is the faith that sanctifies. You know, the grace of God that brings salvation also teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts. And so in Galatians 5, it's, it's telling us that the works of the flesh, that the murders, envying, drunkenness, reveling, and such like, that those who do this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Hebrews 12, 14 says, Follow peace with all men and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So don't believe Satan's lie that, that it's not a big deal. That we understand that, that when we have trusted God, faith in God is one thing. The fight for holiness is something else. That's, that's the lie of Satan. Those come together. That when we have faith in God, we can fight against sin. And, and the truth is, a saving faith is a lust-fighting faith. Because a faith that doesn't change our life is not a faith that's going to save our soul. The faith that delivers us from hell also will deliver us from lust. It doesn't mean the battles vanish. No, Jesus said that being heaven-bound means we will recognize the horror of offending a holy God. And so in Matthew chapter 5, we have the very familiar passage of going to war. The picture there is that, you know, Jesus said, you've heard it said in old, that you shall not commit adultery. But I say, if you look on a woman to lust after her, you've committed adultery in your heart. And then he says, if you're right, I offend you, pluck it out. Cast it from you. It's better off, it's more valuable, there's better profit that to lose a member than to perish in hell. And if your right hand offends you, cut it off. Cast it from you. Now, it's figurative language because it's a heart issue and that's what's being brought out. We're not told to literally gouge out our eye or cut off our hand because it's saying it's a heart issue. But what it is saying is eye gouging and, and amputation is preferable to sin. And that's how we need to think of it. That we understand that we can get victory that it can be defeated by God's grace, the grace that brings salvation, that teaches us. It's a sin-canceling grace. It's also a sin-conquering grace. And so we can have that confidence, that hope, that we reject the lie of Satan that somehow this will be satisfying. You know, that's, the faith is seeing sin without the mask. The idea that, oh, this somehow will, will bring a certain pleasure. Well, there is pleasure in sin for a season. But faith sees behind the mask. It sees sin as it is. And understanding that there is a battle that is raging and we can be victorious, that we would pursue holiness, without which no one will see the Lord.
that these are just a few of the promises. We, we could look at other areas, I mean, of impatience, of lying, of deceit, of pride. But I want us to also understand as we, we kind of conclude this, the picture I showed you at the beginning, there, there is a strength in numbers in our faith. That as we gather as a church family, we really are bringing our shields together. That we help protect one another. That's why we need a church family. You know, do we, we have to realize Satan knows our makeup. He's been in the temptation business a whole lot longer than any of us have been alive. He started way back in the garden. And so he's really good at it. And, and he knows areas of our weakness. You know, he knows if, if you tend to be a very logical, analytical person, then he will, he will tempt you with doubts. Well, how does this really work out? You know, we, we hear this in theology, we see this in theology. How does this and this come together? And we start putting our human reasoning above believing the God of the Word. And, and so then we start having problems. And the Bible says casting down philosophies and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. You know, there are some theological truths I, I don't understand but I trust God that he's figured it out. And so I have to, as, as Charles Spurgeon said, a, a, a phrase I've used many times, we have to have faith to believe what the Bible says and humility not to go beyond it. Because sometimes my human reasoning gets me way beyond what the Bible says. And we have to be careful there. Now, if, if, you're, if you say, well, logic's not really my issue, <laughs> Maybe you're more of an emotional person. Then he'll tempt you with things that, well, you know, that just doesn't feel right to me. You know, doesn't God want me to be happy? And this isn't really making me happy. It's like, no, I need to be holy. I need to trust God's word. Because he's going to bring things along that, that we will think, well, that doesn't fit my idea of what a loving God would do. We need to trust the God of the word. You know, some people, well, it's experience. And Satan will give us experiences that, that seem to contradict Scripture to get us to deny truth. He's very good at tempting. But we have to have the shield of faith. Taking the, the Word of God, the indwelling of the Spirit, and bringing those together. So the question is, are, are we protected from the enemy's flaming arrows? Are you presently living by faith? Are you battle ready because of faith? You know, we're, we're going to face battles tomorrow. We're going to face those flaming arrows. And what are you willing to do to win the spiritual battles you face? Take the, field of, the shield of faith, having done all to stand in a wicked day. You know, we, we don't know what's coming, but we can trust the Lord. On January 8th of 1956, Jim Elliott, Nate Saint, Ed McCulley, Pete Fleming, Roger Udarian, these men were speared on a sandbar called Palm Beach. That was how, what they had named it, in the Carreri River in Ecuador. They were trying to reach a, a group of, of people, the Hurani Indians. They were known as the Aukas at that time. That was really a derogatory term, though they didn't realize that. But they were trying to reach them for the very first time with the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
The, the story through Gates of Splendor was really impactful in my life. So I read that and then in the shadow of the Almighty and, and then later reading Nate Saint's story and read a number of those. But you know what was interesting? Before they went to that beach, the night before all of this happened, these men gathered together for a time of prayer. They, they knew that these people were coming toward them. They had seen that from their plane. They knew they were coming and they gathered for a time of prayer and a time of singing. And this is the song that they sang. It was recorded in their journals that were found after they were dead. They sang, We rest on thee, our shield and our defender. We go not forth alone against the foe. Strong in thy strength, safe in thy keeping tender. We rest on thee, and in thy name we go. Yea, in thy name, O captain of salvation, in thy dear name, all other names above, Jesus our righteousness, our sure foundation, our prince of glory, our king of love. We go in faith, our own great weakness feeling, and needing more each day thy grace to know. Yet from our hearts, a song of triumph pealing, we rest in thee, and in thy name we go. We rest on thee, our shield and our defender. Thine is the battle, thine shall be the praise. When reigning in the kingdom of thy splendor, victors we rest with thee through endless days. Little did they know that the next morning they would be in the presence of the Lord. But that's what they sang. They went in faith, seeing the Lord as their shield and their defender. Can we say that as we go into the the battle? We don't know where those arrows are coming from, but we know we are in a battle. We can rest in him and in faith go, not faith in us because we see our weakness, but he is our shield and our defender. How goes the battle for you this evening? How are you doing with the shield of faith? Let's pray together.